Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Professor Kit Hume to talk about her book, The Metamorphoses of Myth in Fiction Since 1960. Kit, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very pleased and thankful to you for inviting me. Well, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Okay, I have followed a long and wandering path. I started my academic life as a medievalist, so Old English, Middle English, and Old Norse. My thesis book was on the Owl and the Nightingale, and I published articles on Beowulf and Grettir's saga and saga structure and the Franklin's tale and various forms of romance. At that point, I wanted to write my next book on Middle English romance. I wanted to write the definitive study of it. That's how we thought in those days. But I felt that my skills in writing weren't quite up to it. So I decided I would write a quickie book on fantasy, since I'd been teaching that. It took me 10 years and a whole new education. Owing to my having been a medievalist, I had never taken a course in American literature or in the 20th century, so you can understand that I had to do a fair amount of catching up. Then after 13 years of various teaching, I finally got a sabbatical, and I wanted a project that I could complete in a single year. I had done some work on Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, and I decided to write on that. So that book came out, and the title is Pynchon's Mythography. So you can see that myth is beginning now to make its way into my thinking. My next book was on Italo Calvino. He died suddenly, and I knew that if I were going to write on him, I had to get to it promptly before a lot of Italianists got in on that. And I was interested in him from his cosmic-comical stories which mythologize scientific theories. So again, myth is influencing what I was doing there. I dropped everything. I audited some Italian courses. I spent a summer in Italy working on Italian, and then I read all of his work in Italian and all the criticism in it and wrote that book. While an English department has no particular use for a book on an Italian author, they don't mind one that's published with Oxford University Press. But I decided at that point, since I was departmentally seen as contemporary and basically American, that was the direction I should head in. So my next book was on called American Dream, American Nightmare, Fiction Since 1960. That doesn't have anything particularly mythological. I then wrote a book on academic job hunting, specifically aimed at humanities PhDs, because most of the books that existed then tried to treat them along with people in chemistry and engineer 
bring. And those fields are just all totally different. The advice wasn't good enough. It wasn't specific enough for our people. I'd been job placement officer for many years. Then I turned to Anglophone writing that deliberately upsets and attacks the reader. An obvious example is Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, which most of us at least find extremely painful to read. But some books attack religion, some attack sexual attitudes, some work stylistically. They seem to move so fast you can't quite follow them, or they don't seem to have any plot at all. Uh, there's various sorts of grotesque wreaths, some of them that go in just for a high whine all the time, whining, whining, whining. So I wrote a book on aggressive fiction. Writing that was rather hard on my nerves. I didn't really like many of the books. So I decided that my next book would have to be on something I really enjoyed. I looked at everything I'd written and saw that a great many of the articles and books, most of the items that I'd enjoyed, had some kind of mythic content. So I decided I needed to understand that better, which brings me then to the metamorphoses of myth and fiction since 1960. Just to give a sense of my background, the other modern authors whom I've published on include C.S. Lewis, David Lindsay, Robert Coover, Kurt Vonnegut, Calvino, H.G. Wells, Arthur Clarke, Thomas Pynchon, Ishmael Reed, Salman Rushdie, William Burroughs, Norman Mailer, Kathy Acker, William Kennedy, Richard Browdigan, John Edgar Wideman, Gerald Weisenor, Richard Powers, Neil Gaiman, and A.S. Byatt. So that gives you some sense of my background and where I came from and how I got here to this. Yeah, um, all over the place with uh, contemporary American. A lot of that sounds really exciting. It was fun. It's been great fun to go in the direction that I felt some tug, some interest, some sense that I needed to understand it better. (laughs) So do you have a story about how this particular book came into being? Basically, it was looking over my other things and seeing that most of the ones I'd really enjoyed had a mythic component. I guess you could also say I was somewhat taken with trying to figure it out because I've also written on and I enjoy fantasy, but the two are not the same. Whatever it is that was getting me about myth was not just that it's, you know, nice fantasy that I enjoy. So trying to distinguish between them was something that was worth trying to do. Well, let's turn to the substance of the book then. Um, So you, uh, you start by looking at myth as an artist's tool, and I want to just start by defining our terms. You explain that mythology can mean different things to different people. So tell us how you've defined and classified myths and their related elements in your book. Yes, I will. Myth concerns people who have a special relationship to a realm which is just as real as our material realm, but we can't get to it. Now, the traditional way of thinking of this is the people who have some kind of special relationship to the gods. In the Hebrew scriptures, you talk about the patriarchs as people who walked and talked with God. 
Uh, later figures don't do that, but the early people do. But it concerns people then who have this special relationship to the gods or to this other realm. They somehow can contact it in the way that most people can't. A mythic world is this world in which another level of reality is recognized and believed in. It's just as real as the material one, but it's not something we can simply move into easily. Land of the gods may be one such level, or land of the dead, or in some contemporary work, uh, the internet is such a world, which is well, it's based on computers which have, you know, silicon and metal and stuff like that. But it is a world that has its own reality, which people are increasingly seeing themselves being able to enter, which they can't just walk into physically. So it's another world on top of our material world. Mythology is a collection of interrelated myths added to over the years and even over centuries. We have the Iliad and Odyssey as the great classical example. Uh, then along comes Virgil writing the Aeneid, where he takes the story of wandering in the Odyssey, and instead of tracking the fall of a city, he works it up to the founding of a city. Then you get some very early medieval writers uh, Darius Phrygius and Dictus Cretensis, who wrote fictional accounts, one from the Greek side and one from the Trojan side of that story. Then you get some Italian writers and French writers. Chaucer then, say, picks up and takes a very minor character, if you go back to Homer, Troilus, and writes a whole large book about him. Shakespeare picks up Troilus and does a rather grungy picture of. Troilus. Then you get modern writers who are still adding to this. Two particularly effective novels, I think, are David Malouf's Ransom and Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad. She's looking at Penelope, the wife of Odysseus. Invented myth is something where the people have a connection to this other realm, but it doesn't grow out of an ancient religion. And it can be something that someone writes up for the first time now, as it were. In other words, it doesn't have a long tradition behind it. Though it can go back a long way. And my best example of the invented myth is the Arthurian cycle. Whoever Arthur was, or his prototype, lived roughly around 400. But people have been adding to that all the time along, getting different things from it. Sometimes it's used as stories of national expansion, uh, which makes the English very happy, or it is consolation for their losing space in France. Then you get the French writers turning it into a story of love and adultery, and Guinevere and Lancelot's adultery bringing them down. It goes right on up. We have you know, major Arthurian writers today who are adding to that story. It doesn't have, it doesn't grow out of a dead religion, Christianity is assumed, but it does have a special realm behind it, the realm of fairy, 
where Morgan Le Fay and Morgos and so forth have special powers. And someone like the Green Knight can come into Arthur's court, have his head chopped off, pick up the head, have the head talk to them and say, and now one of you has got to come and let me do the same thing to you. And Arthur can be taken away when he's dying to the Isle of Avalon and live there, neither living nor dead. Uh, in other words, taken out of our reality into another one. The final definition that I use is situational myths, certain situations which to us belong to mythic cycles. So the creation of the world, which we think of as the Genesis story and so forth, is something that people do rewrite sometimes. Apocalypse or end of the world, a great many people have rewritten one way and another. There are a certain number of messianic stories, stories about messiahs, leaders who have this extra power that goes beyond to the gods or what have you. And then, thanks to Ovid, we are well aware that one of the mythic situations is metamorphosis, changing of your form. And I certainly didn't expect this when I got into it, but that is the dominant myth it seems to me, for a lot of work that's being done in contemporary science fiction. So I study myth as an artistic tool. I'm an agnostic, I'm a materialist, I don't believe in it, and yet in some fashion, myth works positively for me in literary contexts. I want to try to figure out how and why. Here are a few of the things that myth can do for one. It supplies cultural capital. Those of us who know the Trojan story, if we you know, can assume that kind of knowledge, we can make references to it and it works for us. For artists, it, commit, it permits certain kinds of condensation and illusion. If you were trying to tell the same story about Jack and Sally, you would have to fill in a lot more material than you do if you're telling it about Orpheus and Eurydice. It supplies cultural compensation, something that we feel to be missing in our culture. One of the things that a number of authors certainly play with is how can you join power with goodness? And certainly that's the way some of the Arthurian material is being used now. We have become so cynical about power and so disgusted with how it's using, we find it hard to believe that you could have a good person who's also all-powerful, but we want it. So anyway, those are some of the issues that <clears throat> got me into this and got me excited about it. Well, I think your point about um, where where you're coming from, as well as where society in general is coming from, is, raises a really interesting point. Because um, you begin by looking at what you call our postmodern mindset and talking about how myths, uh, despite seeming particularly ill-suited, perhaps, to our modern perspective, um, they still have a lot of cultural capital anyway, as you say, right? So maybe first explain what you mean by, by postmodernism in this context, uh, and then tell us why you think some recent authors have found particular resonance with Egyptian mythology, for, et cetera, uh, for example. Okay. I'm not getting into any very deep definition of postmodern. <clears throat> to me, 
I'm pretty happy with Brian McHale's definition of it as asking ontological questions, questions about the nature of reality. Since anyone who's working with myth nowadays is to some extent writing about the nature of reality rather than just epistemological questions, which is what modernists were concerned with. How do we know what we know? What got me into first Egyptian mythology was my wondering, how can you use a myth when most of your readers aren't familiar with it? It's easy enough to see how a familiar myth might be used, but what do you do? Most of us don't know much beyond recognizing the names Set, Osiris, Isis, Horus, and that's about as far as most of us can go for Egyptian myth. Two authors burst forth with it together, Norman Mailer first and very soon thereafter, William Burroughs, who says Mailer's book, you know, triggered his. But I thought looking at Mailer would be interesting. Mailer, in the first place, believes in heroism. He also has a private, and as far as I can tell, a mythology that he truly believes in, that there is a God, and he is a struggling artist. Doubtless, Mailer sees himself a bit in that line. He is up against Satan, who is slick and who relies on technology. Mailer wants heroic decisions, and everything humans do contribute to this struggle between God and Satan. If we take the hard road, we make the hard decision, we make the sacrifice or what have you, we are putting weights on God's side of the scale. Whereas if we say, oh, well, I'll just let it pass this time or take the easy way out or lie or what have you, then we are putting our weights on Satan's side of the scale. But one of the things he likes is that makes human life meaningful. So he was setting up a world, and he wanted something that would be totally non-Judeo-Christian, and he took to Egyptian for a number of reasons. One, we know that there was at least a certain amount of incest among the Pharaonic families, <coughs> and that violates all the Judeo-Christian theories. Among other things, his main character, Menenhetet II, sleeps with his mother. That just wipes out the whole Freudian notion of humanity, as it were. None of those uh, problems of the desire for the mother, which can't be satisfied, etc., need enter into this society. It's also a realm of a tropical river and stenches, and Mailer has always been our laureate of stenches. And the notion of the afterlife is sort of two-part. There's the duad, which involves more tests of the soul, which it has to go through bravely, or it will be destroyed. If it actually manages to go through all of them properly, it will end up in the Western lands under Osiris. So <clears throat> he's playing with that. He's playing with the notion of multiple selves, because the Egyptians believed that we all have seven souls, and he was looking at afterlife giving you yet another chance to try to make the right decisions that will get you to 
the promised land. So that was one use of Egyptian mythology. And then for contrast, I offered a totally different one by Ishmael Reed and his novel Mumbo Jumbo. He's not concerned with multiple souls. He's not really even concerned with afterlife. He is concerned with using Egypt to set up a major contrast between white and black culture. Set is the policeman. He is the guy who wants control. He wants hierarchy. He wants armies so he can conquer other realms. He wants to control things. He doesn't want sexy dancing. He doesn't want good music. He wants things all to be in his set pattern. Whereas Osiris is the leader of a band. It's black mud sound, makes people dance and be happy. And the kind of life that Osiris is concerned with is agricultural, low-tech, a lot of singing and dancing and easy living, lots of sex, and comfortable and not trying to take over anyone else. So these two are set up in contrast in the book. And, of course, Reed is also talking then about the Harlem Renaissance and the black art movement, black arts movement, as attempts of what he calls Jess Groove, this spirit of the black side of culture, to rise up. And those two times it gets beaten down again by the white side, the Seth side. But it will rise again, as his main character says. So I was just interested in what these two people could do with such very, such very different things with myths that we don't know. But clearly, myth could work, even though we didn't happen to know much detail about it. So that's basically the sort of thing I covered in chapter one. And so you also write about how mythology is used to talk about death. And this takes on a different significance in a culture that increasingly rejects literal belief in the afterlife like you do. So um, what do you think is going on here? Why does it still maintain cultural capital despite this difference of belief? Well, there's some wonderful things they can do with it. I'll talk about three authors who use it to talk about death in very different ways. One is William Gibson in Neuromancer. Now, that was the novel that really opened up popular interest in the internet, published in 1984, written on a manual typewriter and all that. He visualized the internet as blocks of data which would be colorful, they would have a shape. His landscape inside the internet would look, as it were, like a city, very brightly colored with all these blocks of data. And the hacker, which was his chief character, could zoom in through these and bore into the buildings, the data uh, that he wanted to get and steal. We see various versions of death in this story, and you'd think that, you know, something that was about the internet and was all very new and so forth is amazingly concerned with death. The very rich family that's controlling a lot of it, the Tessier ash pools, seem to spend a lot of time in cryogenic suspension. 
They also manage somehow to clone their bodies and move their minds from one to another. But this particular way of handling death or avoiding it doesn't seem terribly satisfactory. The the keyboard cowboy or hack case at one point is nearly flatlined or killed when he's trying to hack into something, and he is given a choice. He can stay, his body can stay dead, but he will stay alive in the net. He decides to go back to his body and carry out the rest of his quest. But later on, when he is jacking in, he sees himself off in the distance in this landscape. So part of him has gone on. It's now separate from him, but it's alive in the internet. It's living beyond him, and in some sense, live beyond him even when his body does die. He also sees someone else whom he knows to have died to be there. So that was another form of death being handled through this creation of a secondary uh, level of reality. Furthermore, when Case does what he does, which lets two artificial intelligences finally join electronically, he's creating what amounts to a new god. So he has a definitely a world, a mythic world with another level of reality that certain people can learn how to enter and do things in it, and they can carry on living there even when their body dies. Now, A.S. Byatt's Ragnarok is a very different way of handling death. She's really looking at the death of the whole world. <clears throat> She's starting back in World War II when she was a child, and the German planes flying overhead she associates with the wild hunt of Odin. She starts saying, or as she says, she didn't believe the myths as a child any more than she believed the Christian stuff, but she started seeing all kinds of parallels, one of which is that humans are stubborn, stupid, and violent. And she thinks the gods are stupid and in the way they behave and the way they handle things or don't handle them. Loki is the one who interests her because he's curious and he looks for patterns and he tries to explain things. He is also, though, completely unmoved by bad results from things he's doing. So in a sense, he is the scientist who's doing things that may have unintended consequences that are bad for the world. She says that humans are basically just like these Norse gods. They're stubborn, they're stupid, they're violent. The gods know that the end of the world is coming, the Ragnarok. And not once do they stop to say, is there anything we could do to prevent this? She looks at the world from a point of view of ecology. She has a wonderful chapter on the world ash tree, which could have been lifted right out of a David Attenborough session where she describes all of the biology of the tree and the animals living in it and on it. And then she uh, creates a similar thing for giant kelp in the ocean, which as far as I'm aware is not anywhere in Norse material. 
She then starts seeing how the end of the world is going to come. The Midgard serpent, she says, loves to smash and bleach coral. And then she thinks about the huge patch of plastic waste in the Pacific and says it reminds her of Nalufar, of the ship that is coming at the end of the world that's built from dead men's fingernails. So she's looking at the end of the world. And in Norse thought, if our material is accurate, once the end of the world comes, even the people who are dead but living in realms like hell, and that's H-E-L, it's not the Christian hell, and Valhalla will cease to exist. Everything will cease to exist when the Ragnarok is finished. So that's how she is looking at death and looking at our idiocy and our unwillingness to look to the future and take steps that might change things. The third book I'll mention for a totally different view of death is James Morrow's Towing Jehovah. This starts with a wonderful premise. God is dead and his two-mile-long corpse is floating in the Atlantic. What are you going to do about it? Well, this raises all sorts of interesting questions. It means that that extra level of reality once existed, but it doesn't anymore. God's no longer there. The angels have all died, too. Well, those with a Christian background want to hide the dead deity, It's awfully hard to move something that large, but they try to ship it to the north and hide it under ice in the north. But meantime, you know, they're exploring the corpse. A priest and nun are walking on the huge face and look up the nostril. And one of them says, you know, marshes of mucus, boulders of dried snot. Nose hairs the size of obelisks. This was not the Lord God of hosts we grew up with. Uh, Readers enjoy and feel a bit uncomfortable at this indecorous way of dealing with gods as having a very physical body. So anyway, they do manage to get it up and under the ice. It, It... goes rather wild towards the end with World War II reenactors trying to dive bomb it so that there's no evidence that it existed and stuff like that. But the basic setup is simply wonderful, and it asks some interesting questions. And there are two follow-up volumes having to do with (coughs) what uh, happens to the corpse later on. In the second one, it gets taken over by the Baptists and becomes part of a uh, biblical theme park with, you know, the uh, chariots of fire, Ferris wheel, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, merry-go-round, and things like that. And then someone who has had terrible things happen in his life wants to sue God for allowing such, and a Harvard professor who has made a J.K. Rowling-size fortune with his children's books, wants to argue in God's behalf, justifying the ways of God to man. So the second volume is really theodicy, dealing with justifying the ways of God to man, or not, as the case may be. 
So those were just three people using myth to talk about death, to face it, to see what could be said about it. And certainly the closest to any kind of afterlife that we're meant to take seriously is the electronic one. Huh, fascinating. <laughs> so next you focus on the myth of Orpheus in particular. Uh, what can we learn from contemporary engagement with this story? Okay, I took Orpheus because it is very popular. Many people have used it. Uh, there were horror zombie stories based on it. There, were, there was a game based on it. There were some poems. There was some light pornography and so forth. But here are a few, I think, important pieces trying to deal, do interesting and original things with it. One is Jeanette Turner Hospital's Orpheus Lost. This starts with the concept of the underworld, which of course can mean anything from the land of the dead, the dark night of the soul. It can mean insanity. It can mean depression. You know, it's been used various ways by various poets and writers in the past. She takes underworld instead in the more criminal sense, and she's looking specifically at the U.S., and its use of torture on political prisoners. She's setting it particularly in Iraq and in the prisons underneath Baghdad. She is also interested in reversing the role. So it happens that it's Orpheus who gets taken off to the underworld, and it's his Eurydice who has to go look for him. Eurydice is Leela May Magnolia Moore, from Promised Land, South Carolina. She comes from a very religious family. She's mostly lost her religion. She is a graduate student at MIT, having to do with sonics and how to create good musical instruments working with the physics of sound. And her Orpheus is Mishka Bartok, who is the grandson of people who were in Jewish concentration camps during the Holocaust, but who survived in bad shape and got to Australia, where he has been raised. And he is now a graduate student at Harvard in music. She, they meet and become lovers. He is was only told as he was heading off for graduate school by his mother that his father had been a student from a Near Eastern country, but that their family had told her that the guy was killed in an auto accident. When Mishka gets to the Harvard-MIT region, someone says, you look like an Abukir. And that was the name of his father. And so he starts trying to learn more about this family learns that his father indeed is alive and has given up music and has sworn jihad. And Mishka, being very innocent in political ways, allows himself to be smuggled to this land so he can meet his father, except that U.S. military is handling it, and so they nab both his father and him and stash them in this prison complex, destroying all their papers and all record of their existence. 
and our Eurydice, or Leela May, is trying to look for him. She has one advantage in that a boy she knew back in Promised Land, South Carolina, has become a major in a group of soldiers that is handling some of the torture there. And he contacts her for other reasons, and they talk, and she finally persuades him to try to find her Orpheus, that Orpheus is not a political figure at all. He does lead a raid that gets Orpheus back, though he himself is killed. And Orpheus is shipped off back to his grandparents in Australia, and Leela May is left in Cambridge, and we have no idea whether he is going to revive at all. His hands and his arms have been badly injured, so he's not going to be able to play music the way he had. But anyway, she takes the concept of the underworld and puts this particular political spin on it. The use of the Orpheus story does allow her to condense a lot and make some of it seem more important. If you told me I'm writing a story about a contemporary graduate student in music, <clears throat> I would assume that person is writing what I think of as modern music, and I, being strictly classical music, would assume I didn't really like it much, uh, would not enjoy it. So we can never hear his music, though, in a novel. But being told that he is an Orpheus, that he, in fact, can charm animals since birds would come to the veranda in Australia when he was playing, <coughs> I'm more willing to believe that his music would attract me in that way. It also allows us to care more when he disappears. If you say a graduate student has disappeared, I would say, yes, that's a tragedy. I'm sorry. But when you say it's Orpheus who's disappeared, then that becomes much more intense. The next Orphic figure that I looked at was in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. That is the, you know, the uh, Canterbury Tales of the 20th Century. It's a tremendously important and very beautiful and interesting collection of visual and oral tales. Now, Orpheus does not turn up immediately. He was in a special edition or a special issue when I don't know, uh, Gaiman must have been close to halfway through the total series. But because Gaiman's main figure, the Sandman, has a variety of names, Oneros, Dream, and Morpheus, all of which mean basically dream, <clears throat> the connection of Morpheus and Orpheus suggested something to him. So he rewrote the myth as Morpheus being the father of Orpheus. And we see in it <clears throat> Dream and the other six uh, endless, as they're called, you know, destiny, destruction, desire, delirium, death, despair, are the aunts and uncles at Orpheus's wedding. 
and Eurydice gets bitten by the serpent and dies. Orpheus turns to his aunts and uncles and begs them to help him get his beloved wife back. And they won't interfere with the natural course of things. So he's very angry at them. He has a rather <clears throat> teenage attitude towards things that they should be the way he wants them. And among other things, he totally rejects his father and says, I cut off all connection with you. And Morpheus, who is not very good on emotions anyway, says, fine, right. Okay, Orpheus does go down to the underworld. He does persuade them by his fabulous music to let Eurydice go. And again, he loses her near the top. He gets torn apart by the Maenads, the so-called Sparagmos, and his head is taken by <coughs> Morpheus and kept alive and put in a temple, which is equivalent in the traditional tale to the head floating down a river, landing on the island of Lesbos and becoming an oracle there. Okay, toward the end of this grand collection of stories, I think that, you know, Gaiman was thinking, how can we bring it to a reasonable close? And the Orpheus came back as the way to do this because Morpheus, or Dream, goes to consult the oracle about something, and the oracular head says, I want to die. Because it's Morpheus who made that head immortal, only he can kill it. But if he kills it, he is killing his own blood. He's killing his own kin. And that is probably the oldest rule that humans have as a total taboo. He does it, and that makes him then vulnerable to the Furies. They can kill him any time he comes out of his realm of dream. They can't get him in there, but they kill all of the other beings in dream, and he can keep recreating them, but recreate dead. Killing them, recreate, killing them doesn't make sense. So he decides, ultimately, he will accept death, and he does it on his own terms at his own time, let someone else become the dream figure. And the ending then becomes a very humanist statement. We have to accept death. Death is something that will come to all of us no matter what, but you have to accept it when it comes. So <clears throat> I think it's ultimately a very important part of that frame to the collection of tales. For a very different approach to Orfeo, Richard Powers' novel called Orfeo came out while I was writing the book, and I was very excited because I think very well of Powers. And it's about a musician named Peter Ells, again, a very modern musician. Most of his music, I doubt I would like. But he develops different ways of relating to nature through music, letting nature somehow compose it. Now, Nowadays, some of these things would be called sonification. I don't remember that term in the book, and it may or may not have been known then. But 
people are finding ways of turning scientific patterns into music. But that's only one of the things that Powers is looking at. He does, though, at least refer to the possibility that if we listened to nature in this fashion, it might, if we did it enough, change the way our brains are wired. After all, what we specialize in does change our brains. It's famous that London taxi drivers' brains are noticeably different from all of the streets and interconnections that they have to memorize. And people who speak two or three languages well have noticeably different brains from monoglots. So thinking that if we responded to nature through music rather than just trying to exploit it might make a real difference to us. In the Orfeo story that Powers writes, this guy does not do terribly well by the women in his life. His wife divorces him, his daughter is mad at him, and so forth. Because he started life as a chemist, he starts doing some biological experiments, among other things, encoding some of his music into a bacterium. And he is naive, and he lets the policeman who comes about something see this, and the policeman assumes that he is a bioterrorist. And the newspapers all pick it up and very irresponsibly whoop it up. All sorts of people who are susceptible to this claim they have weird symptoms and go running to the hospital and that he's poisoning the town and all the rest of it. He realizes there's no way he is going to get fair hearing, so he goes on the lam. He briefly visits the two or three people who were important to him in his life, and he ends up at his daughter's house with the police surrounding it and telling him to come out. And he knows, you know, he's never going to get a fair trial, so he runs out carrying a vase that looks a bit like a lab beaker and knowing that they will, of course, shoot him to shreds as he comes out, which they presumably do, though the book ends right at that point where he runs out toward this. It does show us a different version of the sporagmos. Instead of being torn apart by the maenads, which seems very strange and weird and old to us, we suddenly realize that Far too many people face just that sort of sporagmos by police shooting. <coughs> so anyway, this Orpheus works, among other things, with the mytheme, or well, there are a number of mythemes related to this story. There is the fact that his music will enchant animals. We see Peter Ells playing and listening to the way his dog howls to music and understanding the pattern, the dog will pick a tone that he is not using for the music and howl on that. But we see him interacting his music or having his music interact with animals. He does make this descent into <clears throat> an underworld of horror and fleeing and being chased by the police. Uh, He does mess up his life with the women, can't get them back. He is torn to pieces. 
And he has this attempt to <clears throat> operate as an oracular head, A, by sending some, coding some of his music into the bacterium, and B, when he's being chased, he starts issuing Twitter statements. So these are his oracular statements. But anyway, having the Orpheus overlay makes this modern composer a lot easier to understand and to take as an important figure. <coughs> so those are just three of the people that I deal with in that chapter. You also examine the significance. You know what? I'm just going to start again because that echoed a little bit. Okay. You also examine the significance of invented myths, uh, suggesting that popular stories like Star Trek and the superheroes of the DC and Marvel Universe, for example, can be considered uh, invented myths of our day. So you argue that overwhelmingly these stories are about power. So tell us what you mean by this and what you think that means. Okay, when you're inventing <clears throat> someone who has special powers... Uh, that is what they have that we don't. So many of these are looking at the problem of power. Back in the World War II and shortly thereafter era, people were prepared to believe in, <clears throat> you know, gleaming, virtuous American power, Superman, Captain America, and so forth. But Vietnam and other subsequent wars have wiped away our willingness to believe in power being used just for the good that way. So here are some of the ways that power has been looked at. If you want me to focus particularly on the superhero style, <clears throat> the place to look would be Alan Moore's Watchmen. One of his so-called, he, he was not, he, he wanted to focus on the actual DC and Marvel characters, but those outfits obviously did not want their characters put under a moral microscope. So he decided to study the <clears throat> type by creating fictional versions of them. So one of his superheroes is Adrian Veidt, who's the smartest man in the world and has built a huge fortune entirely from scratch. <coughs> He believes that might makes right. He realizes that the U.S. and the Russia are about to bomb each other and destroy life on the Earth. So he stops this by creating the illusion of a, an alien invasion in New York that kills off several million people. But it does cause the atomic clock to move backwards, as it were, and Russia and America to back off. But we ask, okay, does might justify, or does right justify might here? Uh, Rorschach is another one of these masked heroes. We don't feel bad about the child molester and torturer that he kills. And yet we know that we're not really happy with vigilante killing and are not really happy with trusting his judgment on things. So that's another use of power that we're not really comfortable with. <clears throat> the comedian is something of a takeoff on Captain America. 
He loved being in Vietnam because basically he works for America. And so we get one vision of his experience there. He's behind a flamethrower mowing down a row of people on the other side, grinning and feeling good about it. But, you know, how good are we supposed to feel about someone who's doing that, even if it's being done for his country's good? Dr. Manhattan is the man who was destroyed in an atomic accident, but somehow managed to reconstruct himself atom by atom. He's now very much a superpower, far beyond anything that anyone else has imagined. But the chief way that he is, his mind works, we see this image of cogs and wheels from a watch. He doesn't think like a human, and he doesn't, <clears throat> whatever he suggests, we don't really think that his taking over the world would be such a good idea anyway. And we follow a couple of minor super people who are trying to escape from the world that Adrian Veidt is putting together but we don't have any great faith that they're going to manage. So that was one way of looking specifically at the superheroes. I think there are a variety of other ways of looking at problem of power. <clears throat> Donald Bartolome's dead father looks at patriarchy. He considers also, from an author's point of view, James Joyce as the great father that no one can live up to. Uh, this is all very French theory, nom du père, and stuff like that. However, if we're getting rid of the father, whom they want to be dead and buried, what's going to follow is going to be some kind of democracy from among his many children, and they are unimpressive, ordinary, stupid. Uh, we don't get a sense that they're going to produce a very good world if they run it. So. We don't really know. Getting rid of the patriarchy seems like a good thing to most of us, but what are we getting in place? Another story that I thought was extremely good that was invented myth and the problem of power is Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker. In that story, he starts with the world has bombed itself back into primitive existence. It takes place in the vicinity of Canterbury, England. Farmers are beginning to farm again and fence off areas, which means that nomads can't travel as much as they wanted to or need to. Instead, they do some of the dirty work for what government exists, digging up fragments of the old civilization, meaning our civilization, mostly for the metal so it can be melted down and reused. There's no new production of metal, but there's a fair amount of creation of old stuff from old stuff. People know that once there were pictures in the air and ships in the sky, and they're interested in trying to get that back. They think of it as, in terms, though, of the myths that have taken over the world. At this point, Christianity doesn't seem to exist anymore. And what we have is a garbled myth based on the legend of St. Eustace. And he was a Roman centurion. He was a pagan. He was in the woods. He saw a stag with a shining crucifix between its antlers. He became 
uh, converted to Christianity. And he was apparently offered a choice. Either you have a wonderful life now and then a terrible end, or you run into all sorts of trouble now, but we'll have a wonderful end. So he chose that. Consequently, very shortly after his uh, conversion, his wife was stolen by pirates. One child was taken off by wild beasts in one direction. The other one was taken off by wild beasts in another. He spends his life hunting for them. Eventually, the family all gets together and then goes to happy martyrdom for Christianity, <coughs> which doesn't sound like a particularly cheerful story for, to us, but it certainly did to original Christians. However, this story has become weirdly distorted. Eustace is now Yusa, which also sounds like a pronunciation for the USA. Uh, he sees the crucifix, and in the story that has evolved, Yusa is told, get the numbers for the one big one, meaning the atomic bomb. He goes down into the wood. He goes then to the heart of stone. He sees particular tracks, in other words, the particle tracks in a cloud chamber, which is early work on the atoms. <coughs> and at one point, what he does is to grab <coughs> the little shining man version of the crucifix and tear him in two to get the information he needs to build the bomb. Well, tearing the atom apart, this is Adam, the man, atom, the thing, splitting the atom. So we get this myth of tearing the little man apart, which is equivalent to splitting the atom. And much of the story then is concerned with power. Do we want to try to get the past back? Do we want the one big one, the atomic bomb, or the one little one, which is gunpowder? The farmers want to go ahead. The nomads are less certain. They don't think that digging up the old stuff is a very good idea. Uh, Ridley Walker, the main character, is partly on the outside of this. He's not sure. He then sees some things that make him even less interested in power, but he visits at one point something that was clearly some kind of atomic accelerator, a great big circle. And he feels power there take him almost, well, sexually. So he understands why power attracts some people so much. He finally decides he can't go along with the government on this. And he becomes, as it were, the first person to carry out secular uh, entertainment, uh, puppet shows that are not the use of story things the government puts out, but are Punch and Judy. We also, though, get a lot of other made-up mythology in this story, and Hoban is very interested in mythology. There's even a, a uh, <clears throat> Orphic element in it, because when Yusa dies, he's killed, his head prophesies problems to the government and then falls silent. So it has that oracular mytheme from the Orpheus story. Another book that deals with the problem of power, and I'll mention this briefly because it's not Anglophone literature, but Italo Calvino, because he is the only person I know who offered a totally different answer to it. His cosmicomical stories 
mythologize science. And what he's doing is to make us see the wonder that is about us, the first light, the first bird, what it's like to be all at one point, uh, gay, playing games with new atoms. He makes us see the universe in a totally different way. And he's not looking for power. In fact, he has no use for it. Uh, he lives instead in the, these stories and in some of his other novels for enriching your mind with what you read, with what you see, with what you tell people, with what they tell you. It's enriching your mind is what you should be striving for, not power. And he puts that across in the cosmocomical stories. So those are just some of the ways that invented myth is used to probe the problem of power. Calvino sounds really interesting. He is. So you expand your exploration of invented myth to speculative fiction, uh, specifically the stories that imagine humanity's future through a transhumanist or posthumanist lens. So do you think these stories have a significance then that goes beyond uh, genre entertainment? I think very much so. Most of them start with background thought. Ray Kurzweil is merely one of the more visible people pushing this. The concept of the singularity. Somewhere roughly around the year 2045, technological advancement, which has been going up logarithmically very slowly, but is getting faster and faster. And at that point, the curve is going to be heading straight up, practically, so that in the next 100 years, we won't make 100 years of progress, we'll make 20,000 years of progress, or that's his theory. <coughs> Since some of his predictions about the cheapness of getting solar cells for your roof have not yet come into being, by the date he said it would, I am prepared to be skeptical. But nonetheless, what he's foreseeing as realms in which major changes will take place are genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics. Genetics in terms of cloning our bodies. The nanotechnology and robotics really combine because he and many other people are fascinated by the notion of nanobots, meaning things that are the size of a couple of atoms that can somehow operate. And one of the things that they would do that lets this work is they can simply dive into all of the trash heaps that we have built in this world and take everything apart to its individual component atoms and then construct whatever we actually want. This would create, according to him and others, a post-scarcity world. In other words, we can have basically whatever we want, and it will come from this kind of recycling. Now, let me just mention two authors who take this up in very different ways. Cory Doctorov in Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom pictures a world in which it's all post-scarcity, we really don't have to work, we can do whatever we want. So the world becomes entertainment, or life does. What do you do if that's all there is in the world? Well, he puts his people in uh, Disney World, redoing shows there, making them even more advanced and so forth. But, you know, anyone who wants can stop and go get a PhD if he's interested in doing so. 
Bodies are cloned, so when yours gets a bit old, you can have your mind transferred to another body. All kinds of things that we assume change. You back up your mind every couple of weeks just to make sure you don't lose much. And one sort of odd situation that he describes for the pleasure of doing so, someone is thinking of murdering someone else. So he or she backs up the mind, go ahead and does the murder, or plans the murder, then go ahead and does it, then gets rid of the body and gets a new body brought out and the mind put in it. But the mind put in it knows nothing about having murdered the person. So that person can say perfectly honestly, I know nothing about this. I'm innocent. <coughs> As you can see, that will mess up a great many assumptions that one makes on what's work. The first time I read it, I thought he was, Dr. R was basically in favor of this realm. I've come to feel that perhaps I did him an injustice and that he is really showing that life lived just for entertainment uh, is not very rewarding. Charles Strauss and Accelerando works in even more versions of multiple cells uploaded. You can upload any number of your cells. Uh, you can get new bodies. You can rest in death for a while and then be brought back to life. It's a total post-scarcity world. He does, though, see a purpose for life, which is he posits the need for more and more sophisticated technology and understanding of it. Because either aliens will eventually get to us and their technology will be superior unless we've been working on this awfully hard, or our own descendants will decide that we're taking up space they want and wipe us out because they are more technologically advanced. <coughs> so he uh, sets up a very complicated story looking at this these technological implications. But these are some of the things, and what I'm interested in these is the way that metamorphosis dominates the notion of this kind of world. You change yourself, you know, you back up your mind, you change your body, you back your mind up into the net, you become a net being totally. Uh, you live on in that fashion. You don't need to die in any fashion that we are aware of now. It's been called the rapture for nerds, meaning your life gets lifted up, and instead of going to heaven, it goes into the web. So anyway, that's what I covered it with situational myth, particularly looking at metamorphosis as it dominates in some of these post-scarcity and uh, cyberpunk novels. So before we go, oh, I'm going to start over again because I'm getting an echo, and hopefully that echo will just. So before we go, I want to just dwell for a moment on a line from your book that I think is really poignant and perhaps sums up your findings. Your research asks why so many storytellers in our scientific-minded present incorporate elements from myths that they don't necessarily share a heritage with or even believe in. And in your conclusion, you suggest that, and I'll quote you here, 
myth in its various forms seems to be able to give us the feeling of meaning. And I think this is a really fascinating phenomenon. And I wondered if you could tell us what you mean by that. Okay. <clears throat> it takes us beyond our isolated selves and connects us to larger patterns of significance. It doesn't supply the meaning itself. That has to come from within us. That would be belief if it was telling us what to believe. But meaning comes from a variety of things. It comes from our feeling that the story ends right, correctly. We have an inner pattern that says, yes, that's the way. That makes us feel good. Uh, we have part of our mind that is very much designed to find patterns and fit things into patterns. The first thing a scientist does when they find a new species is quick to decide where does this bird fit? What sort of species? How does it relate to other species? What uh, not gender, but a genus does it belong to and so forth? So we have a very strong pattern-seeking part of our mind that myth can do things for. It gives us a linkage to the past. It can supply value lacking in the culture, but desired, <coughs> such as power being used for good purposes. The meaning has to come from within us, but this is showing us various ways that give us that feeling of meaning. When we see the patterns that come out the way we think they should, or when we identify something and say, yes, that's an Orpheus story, and that will work in thus and such a way. Or we can be surprised that it doesn't work in that way, but we're engaging with it because we have a background to it. <clears throat> it engages our sense of meaning. So myth is not under an obligation as, as, as an artistic tool to demand belief. That's religion, but it gives those who are willing to respond a feeling of meaning, a sensation that delicately gives us release, gratification, and inner satisfaction. Wonderful. Well, Kit, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Well, the last two articles I did... <clears throat> both looked at contemporary novels that rewrite, in some sense, medieval stories. Maria Devana Headley's The Mirror Wife takes Grendel and Grendel's mother and Beowulf and puts them in contemporary America. And Tony Williams' Nutcase rewrites Grechter's saga as a story of the northern Midlands in uh, England in current days. So I'm interested in that, and I'm also interested in a bit of speculation that I got into at the end of the myth book on neurocognitive patterns and how what our brain is set up to respond to helps us respond to myth if we do respond to it. And so, you know, if I see more to do with neurocognitive patterns, I may do that. I did do a bit with that in an article on Neil Gaiman's Ocean at the End of the Lane. So, you know, reuse of medieval things and neurocognitive things are probably what I'll be doing for a while. Wow, fantastic. 
It was really fun to um, hear you talk about Neil Gaiman. I uh, was a fan of his Sandman series uh, a long time ago, back when I was a teenager. And it's just so gratifying to see scholars treat that work seriously now. And um, yeah, you called it the Canterbury Tales of the 20th century. I think that's that's just fantastic. So <laughs> I agree. I think that is a very great creation. I have looked at some of the new things that are coming out following it, and so far none of them have managed to grip me. I don't know whether I've changed or whether it has, but Sandman as it exists is wonderful. Mm. Oh, I so agree. Well, thanks again, Kit. I really, really enjoyed your book, and I was really glad to have the chance to chat with you about it in person. So thanks so much for coming this afternoon. Well, my pleasure entirely, and do send me a link to this. I'll want to share it with friends. Please do, yes. All right, well, have a very good afternoon. Goodbye. Bye-bye.